Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Today we have a guest who's a little bit outside the norm, but perfectly aligned with what we like to talk about here. Um, Phyllis Levitt is a psychotherapist and author who is focused really on you know, individual mental health, but now delving into the health of our nation, which I think is a super interesting topic and why I wanted to have her on the show. So welcome, Phyllis. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, so if you could just give us a little background about your upbringing, you know, who you are, how you sort of found your way into psychotherapy, I think it's a great starting point to get to know you and kind of what formed your you know, foundation in this world. Yeah. I, and I think like so many people, I found my way into my profession growing out of my own personal path. Um, so I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up kind of in a suburban town. My, the emphasis of my family was on education. So we were, you know, our the whole goal in life was to be in the National Honor Society and get A's. <laughs> That's how I grew up. And, uh, and I actually enjoyed being a student. I really, really liked that. Um, the shadow side was that there were some things that happened to me early in life that were very traumatic in terms of abuse. And, um, and I really, I'm one of the many people who blocked it all out because it happened to me at such a young age. And I didn't really get those memories back until I was in my 40s. And and again, I think my story is not uncommon. I, the, the memories came back to me when my life was falling apart. I was married and I had three kids and it wasn't a good relationship and, you know, just sort of everything unraveled. And, and I think the beauty of the unraveling is that it can be a doorway to great healing. And I feel very fortunate that it was that for me. Um, and so I went to therapy for myself for the first time. When my children were little, I was in my early 40s. No, maybe my late 30s. I don't know where I was. <laughs> I think I was in my late 30s. And, um, and it was a life changer for me. I had no idea before that that our early conditioning determines so much of the ways we feel about ourselves and the coping mechanisms that we come up with to survive in the world, the kind of relationships that we're attracted to, what our own behavior patterns turn out to be it just it had been really a mystery to me before that and no one when I grew up was talking about psychology until really until then that I think it sort of came on the scene at least with the people that I knew so going to therapy was a game changer for me and I was my youngest child then was I think two and I was ready to go back to school and start, you know, slowly developing my own career. And I chose to become a psychotherapist myself. Um, so that's the beginning. And then there's, you know, a lot that goes on after that. <laughs> sure, sure. So um, you grew up in New Jersey. We just talked about that. And I'm a Jersey right. person. So, you know, I kind of know the area that you grew up in. Um you know, you'd mentioned there was an emphasis on education and, you know, was was the house very much dedicated to this idea of, you know, success at all costs. And that kind of definitely formed, you know, that early part, um, you know, where did you go after Jersey in that in sort of that in between Jersey and finding mm -hmm. your way into therapy? Like what happened in that sort of yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly, in, in a way, there, I had a brother and a sister, and I think the emphasis in my kind of family was while we were all encouraged to go to college and get a degree, really success for a girl was to get married to a successful man. 
so it was kind of a you know a confusing message get educated but really your success doesn't lie so much in that as it lies in marrying a doctor or a lawyer or whatever mm. um, so I uh, went originally went to Simmons College in Boston and I um, I always was driven as a young person to do something kind of helping I was always kind of like that was my drive and I I did a number of things, but the summer of my sophomore year, I believe it was, I was a VISTA volunteer in Spanish Harlem, which was a very uh, dangerous place to be, actually. And um, it was full of heroin addiction and violence. And But I was part of a VISTA program, which was like the Peace Corps in the United States. And the program at that time would close off a street. And there were six of us, I think, on that street. Um, and we would run a program for children for the sum for the summer, and it was a wonderful experience uh, and unbelievably eye-opening for me because I really was very sheltered in the sense of growing up just in a kind of safe suburban neighborhood. And when I did that, I did not want to go back to Simmons. I felt I, I just couldn't go back to what felt like at that time. And Simmons may be very different now, but it felt like a high school. It's, it felt like high school, a girl's high school to me, and I, I didn't want to do that. So I transferred to the New School College in, in New York City, and I got my degree there, and I joined a spiritual group, and I was on a spiritual path, really, and that's where I met my husband and had my kids. Um, but at a certain point, I realized that a spiritual endeavor kept bringing me back to my wounded self, and that's how I made the transition to psychology. Like, like that wasn't going to heal whatever was going on with me that wasn't working. Um, so that's kind of how I made that that move. Okay. And then, yeah. So you know, it's it's crazy when you talk about Spanish Harlem and how different it is, right? So for people who are listening that don't understand the geography of Spanish Harlem to the area in New Jersey that Phyllis grew up in, you're talking maybe an hour. But it is a yeah. world of difference, right? It is Absolutely. two different worlds. Um, I was talking to somebody recently about this. I used to go into Manhattan as a kid to visit mm. my grandfather, who actually taught at the new school. But I, oh. I, I, um, I, I would go visit him, and I just remember going into like the Port Authority, even and coming out, right. and it, it's such a different. Right. It was at that point, it was a different world. I think now it's a little bit more you know, gentrified, but, you know, you right. had preachers on the corners and it was, you know, just very sort of, it felt very chaotic and dangerous. And, you know, there right. obviously are still portions that are that way in New York. And I think the uptick has been there, but back, you know, a while, you know, years ago, it was, it was a dangerous place to be, but yet so close to that suburban New Jersey life that we all understood, right. you know, Right, and, and it it could when you saw it, you kind of questioned everything. Everything. I mean, I lived on a street that was there were there were buildings that had been demolished, but not the ruins weren't taken away. There were rats everywhere. There were cockroaches everywhere. There were junkies vomiting on the street. Um, it was, and there were these precious children. Yeah. These precious children that I couldn't get enough of, you know, in terms of wanting to be of some kind of help and realizing that help for these children was way beyond anything that we could do. And yet we did what we could, you know. Um, and and I think it's, um, you know, just, you know, to further that, you know, we still have those problems today all around, right? right? And it's not just New York, right. it's, you know, right. we can go right. kind of across the country and it's just, you know. Detroit, Appalachia, you know, uh, yeah. in the yeah. south, you know, out west, there's there's these pockets of just despair. And I think that that gets to a little bit what you're talking about now. But let's um, just kind of continue to focus on that time. So sure. you had your children, you were married, um, you know, and then you started to at some point in I believe it was in the 90s ish, you got your mm -hmm. degree. Um, you know, what? What was that first step into that world like for you of, you know, the psychotherapy? Were you treating, you know, individuals at that point? What was your focus at yeah. that point? Yeah, and, and I had moved up to Warwick at that point. After I graduated from the new school, I moved up to Warwick, and I, which was in Warwick, New York, which is a very lovely kind of um, 
used to be dairy farm country. I think most of the dairy farms are gone. Um, but it, it wasn't developed at that point. But Warwick is now a very, very lovely place. But it was it was a little bit more run down, but it was still lovely. And um, yeah, I had my children. And, um, and when I went back to school, so I was living there when I went back to school to get a degree in psychology. And it became so clear to me that my own family dynamics were not functional. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I did my best to try to heal the relationship with my husband and really just was not able to do that and just needed to leave. So it was, it was really a very intense transition of moving into my own career at the time that my whole life was being rearranged and I became a single mother. So it was really intense, but I, but it was good. You know, like the silver lining is that I learned the things that I needed to learn for my own life. And without doing that, you know, how can you really be of help to other people? It's an ongoing process of your own growth and development. So I started out working exclusively with children. I did a lot of training in play therapy and, and I loved doing that. But what I soon realized um, was that almost every child that was referred to me to therapy was suffering from a conflictual divorce or a conflictual relationship between their parents. And what was really needed was either family therapy or couples counseling or something that actually addressed what was happening to the child rather than thinking that, for me, thinking that just seeing a child once a week for play therapy was going to resolve what was going on at their house because it wasn't. Um, so I kind of switched out of that mode and I started working with couples and individual adults much more than, and families much more than I worked with individual children. And when I did work with individual children, it was more diagnostic for the parents, you know, for the parents to really get a bird's eye view of what was affecting their children that they could change and impact. Um, yeah. So that was, it was a great training for me. Great. And that's the lens, you know, that eventually I began to look at our country through. Like, what is the family of America like? What are the dynamics of the people in power? What are the dynamics of the people that we depend on? Like, children depend on their parents. Are they healthy? Are they, um, you know, are they devoted to the well-being of the entire family? Or is there some kind of dysfunction or abuse playing out that's hurting people on a large scale like dysfunctional families hurt people in their family on a smaller scale. So that that was the segue for me from my practice of treating individuals and couples to looking at the country and what's going on here and wanting to share what I had learned with the general population because I because just like my own revelations that came from studying psychology and doing my own personal work changed my life. I really believe that there's so much that psychology today has to offer our country in terms of what has gone awry, why are there so many random shootings, why is there so much, you know, hostile discrimination and violence and targeting of minority people or marginalized people, Um, why is the divide between men and women in some areas so great, and what have we learned that actually helps interrupt that cycle that we could apply nationally that we know helps interrupt the cycle of dysfunction and abuse on an individual level. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where I went with it. Yeah. I want to, I definitely want to dive into that. I want to step back a minute to your, sure. the, the children to mm-hmm. couples thing, because I mm-hmm. think it's interesting. I, um, you know, I grew up in, a, you know, looking, it was a good upbringing, but I will say there was a lot of dysfunctional, pieces of my childhood and um you know and it definitely shaped who i was as an adult um you know i'd say that the biggest change in my life happened when i went into couples therapy with my wife oh interesting you know that was the biggest shift i think for both of us too and it was probably the hardest thing that i've done 
ever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, short of parenting, right? Um, right, you know, right, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was intense. It was difficult. It wasn't, uh, it was not easy, but we went and we would go weekly and, you know, sometimes we'd come out of there feeling better about things and sometimes we'd come out feeling much worse and sometimes the ride home mm-hmm. was easy. Sometimes it was a fight and, you know, right. we, we've, we've talked about it, but really what it taught us was was how to become like functional people that we hadn't learned from our upbringings, right? right? Like there was something missing in both of our upbringings that didn't prepare us to be a couple or individuals really. And, you know, and I, and I think when you, you're not ready to be an individual, you're definitely not ready to be part of a couple. And then you get into that, 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 dynamic and you you can't resolve issues correctly and you fight and there's no real you know conflict resolution and so we learned all these things that really shaped who we are and through that we both grew individually and then as a couple and um, have both continued on in therapy since you know um you know individual therapy and we've tried different types and you know i think it's it's something that i always suggest to anybody um yeah you know, just to find the right person to talk to, to That's right. you know, to find the right modality of therapy, right? There's all different types. Um, right. You know, I've done hypnosis, I've done EFT, I've done, you know, mm-hmm. all the different types of things you can do and EMDR, and, you know, so like, I just think that, yeah. you know, there's so many tools out there and again, to fix yourself, right? Right. right. And, and then you can come into a situation a little bit better. Um you know, and when we start to talk about the country, it's there's a lot of broken people out there. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, how do we, you know, part of me always thinks like, how do I help people and how do I get them to a spot where they can start to see, okay, maybe I have some shortcomings. Maybe I have some stuff that I'm bringing into this, you know, mm-hmm. this situation mm-hmm. into my town, into the school, into my workplace. That's not making right. it the best place it just becomes really hard when we start to think about the whole country. And so you have a huge platform that you're trying to accomplish. And I, listen, I think it's great because I I'm right on, on board with you. I think we are broken. Um, and I just wonder, yeah. have you thought about any specific things that can change? Cause I have my thoughts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts? Yeah. And before I go into that, for sure I do. And I talk about that in my book. Like, you know, my book is sort of like part diagnosis. This is what is happening. This is what we can expect if this doesn't change mm-hmm. because abuse and dysfunction just multiplies. It it perpetuates itself. And I really try to spell out how that happens in an individual family that also happens on a larger scale. And the second half of the book is really about what are some of the things that I've learned that help people break that cycle. And and so before I go into that, I would just love it. I love what you said because it's such a good example of what I'm talking about that um, because we are also conditioned as a nation to believe certain things about what's acceptable and what's not and um, who's good and who's bad, just like we learn those things in our own families. And so a lot of it does start with the individual. If I'm acting out my wounds all over the place, I'm going to perpetuate them. Mm-hmm. And and so, but I was curious if you wanted to share just a little bit about what you did learn that helped, you know, with, you know, with that you feel comfortable sharing, because I think you're so right online with what I'm talking about that you're, it's, it's great. Yeah. I, you know, I think it was an interesting experience going through couples therapy, right? So we started, um, there were obvious issues in our relationship. And, you know, now we've had people say, oh, you guys are so, you know, such a good couple. And, you know, but it's work. It's not, it wasn't just pure like, hey, we fell into this thing and it's all been bliss. You know, it's it's constant work. And I think it, it was for us understanding a little bit of, you know, what were the past, traumas and behaviors that we were bringing to the relationship and then putting that in you know on the other person when it really had nothing to do with that person right so i'm bringing in issues around maybe trust or um you know coming from a, a divorced household you know that was maybe a little less structured 
you know, mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. sort of bringing in some of that baggage into the relationship. And I also wanted to be very controlling of my own environment because that's what I did as a kid, right? I controlled what I could control. Right. And so, right. you know, that doesn't always bode well with somebody else, right? Like me organizing right. the bookshelf <laughs> and vacuuming and doing all these, like, right. you know, totally. and and my wife is not the same person as me, right? She ha She lives a very much different type of life she's a little bit more free-spirited and you know and she her upbringing was completely different than mine she had two parents that stayed married they were together from a young age but they also had their challenges and right. how they parented you know made her have her own issues you know and i don't want to really to you know i'm not going to express her issues but let's just say that you know right. the two sets of issues did not complement each other Right. So what we really had to do was understand how to, when we were having a problem, how do we talk through it exactly, and express that to somebody else? I was just talking to somebody about this. It's like, if I can express my expectation or my dissatisfaction before the issue arises, it's a thousand times easier. But if I hold it in and... Um, mm -hmm. you know, wait for, say, you know, somebody not to do something that I don't want them to okay. do. I'm going to yell. I'm going to be angry. Right. right? But right. if I just said, please don't do that and have that little bit of a hard conversation prior to it happening, it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's hard to just express themselves. And for us, that was a huge, mm -hmm. a huge part of our overcoming it. And, you know, I think we're better parents for it. You know, I think we're better people. Um, you know, that led to me not you know, uh, there was enough questioning in all those sessions, either as a couple or individual, where I actually, that's where I got my sobriety, right? Like, mm. I couldn't, I couldn't mm. deny it anymore as a problem um, wow. through those sessions. So, wow, um, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, good. I love that in a place of truth, there isn't room for anything else. And truth becomes kind of desirable rather than something you want to deny. Mm -hmm. Um and that's just that's such a beautiful thing. There's so many things that you said that that I'm I don't know if I can remember them all, but but one of them is um, you know learning the skills to actually talk through a problem. I don't actually know anyone who grew up with that in their home. I think that there that subtly or overtly, most of us grew up in homes where there was a certain power differential that was just accepted. You know, one person had more power than the other. And, and we just went along with it. Um, I know in my home, and, and I grew up, a, you know, longer ago, but nobody ever talked about feelings. You know, there were just expectations, and you did what was expected of you. And, you know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing my parents argue. And I think my mother always won. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and so you just sort of you just learn that relationship is a power struggle that gets worked out, rather, again, whether it's very subtly or very overtly. And psychotherapy and good psychology is very different. And it's so much of what is needed for us personally, but also as a country, that it's not about a power struggle. It's not about someone conquering the other one or making them wrong and bad. It's really about working, listening, deeply listening to your differences and acknowledging that there will always be conflict because we're different people. It's not that we're trying to eliminate conflict. We're trying to handle it um, constructively so that we end up having agreement or we end up having compassion for the other person's point of view or we end up, you know, just dissolving the disagreement because we've come back to such a place of love and connection and we don't care anymore who put the vacuum cleaner where, you know. <laughs> um, so... That's one of the big things that I think we need desperately in this country is, and, and this is, again, um, what I don't think is spoken, is that the container around healing is we desire to come back together in love. We desire to come back together in peace. And that's the goal rather than I'm going to beat you at this game or I'm going to prove you wrong. I may still think you're wrong, but that's not my agenda in the end. My agenda, you know, because you think I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. That's that's how human beings are. Um, but when when there's really good communication skill and the container around that is we love each other and we care about the relationship and we want it to work for everyone, and we're so we're committed to working it out. 
then you have a whole different ball game. And it sounds like that's what you were able to accomplish in the therapy that you did. And that's one of the biggest things I want to see happen in this country, because part of what's broken is this huge hostile divide that keeps getting fueled. And just like children suffer if their parents are engaged in ongoing hostile divide and threatening and, you know, acting out on each other and role modeling, that kind of behavior, we are all affected as the family of America by the same dynamics going on from the top down. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so, you know, I talk about this with my wife a lot um, because I, I, I'd like to be curious about you know, other people's viewpoints. And I think it's an important place to live, you know, in that curiosity. And you lived in Warwick and I lived just over the border and I live in a very sort of, I would just call it red area, right? So Mm -hmm. the views Mm -hmm. around here are very implanted in sort of that conservative viewpoint. And I don't agree with all that viewpoint, um, but I also can understand a little bit where it comes from based on the condition around this area right so like i'm not oblivious mm. to the fact that mm. like this sort of uh idea of what's correct is is implanted in this area you know yeah. i also lived up in boston and spent time in cambridge mm. so you mm. know you know people call it the republic of cambridge so i've seen that viewpoint <laughs> and i can understand you know where that sort of comes from as well you know, the problem, I think, to your point, exists when those two groups get together and just plant their flag and say, you know, the right. Cambridge way is right. the right way or no, this this red area is the right way. And there's no other there's nothing in between there. Right. There's no there's no room for gray. And I think that, right. you know, most of where we want to be is in that gray. It just you know, I think it's exasperated right now a little well, a lot of it by social media and totally. sort of that 24 hour news cycle that popped up, you know, back in the, the early 90s, if you, right. know, you, you follow C-SPAN and, you know, kind of that's kind of where that all came from. And now it's become a sport. It, it's become literally a sport. Okay. I can I like, can run like up my points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm going to run up my social media points because I can say that I fully believe in X or Y and i'm gonna make you look foolish and i think it's a really bad place because it doesn't do Mm -hmm. anything for us in our communities actually it doesn't help fix the pothole at the end of my road it doesn't help somebody get actual health care that's right you know we got to do better and i don't i don't know where we go and i yeah you know i i really love that people like yourself are out there challenging the idea because i think it's important because if we don't change it soon, it is going to be like right. really hard, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that is the urgency with which I wrote the book, really, um, because I see this as a road that is not going to take us to a good place. The, the violence is escalating and it's random people hmm. who are getting killed, which makes no logical sense. And it's a sign of psychological ill health. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is so valuable about psychology and bringing this point of view to the whole, you know, social order that we're, we're trying to survive here and trying to understand is that psychology by itself is not partisan. It's not left or right. Mm -hmm. The advocacy for good psychology and mental health is healthy relationship. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter if you're an independent or you're some other party. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what economic group you're in. The whole thrust of good psychology is to heal human relations. And that's what's missing um, because everything else is sort of a partisan trap. I'm on this side or I'm on that. I stand for this or I stand for that. And so what I'm trying to say in my book is I stand for healthy, loving, caring, human relations where we're committed to resolving conflict peacefully and without violence. And I think that is the big missing piece in our country. And I, I'm, I'm so happy to talk about it that way because so many other things end up falling into the partisan divide. And we, we end up being conditioned to believe that, you know, whatever our policies are on healthcare or immigration or the EP, 
ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, or whatever we're talking about, are ideological differences, when in fact they're not. They're mental health issues. Mentally healthy people do not target and act out violently or discriminate with discrimination on other populations. They don't. Right. They seek to work things out. Right. Do you think that there's a a connection between sort of the breakdown of our local communities and this? Like I I I wish I had been able to visually see like, you know, a time when, you know, people would come home from work and get together in their neighborhood and, you know, have family barbecues and sort of that idealistic picture of what it what it was to live in sort of this community, right? Because I, I, right. I don't know how many communities we actually have anymore. I think they've right. broken down. I mean, I had a little bit of it when I was, you know, in grammar school, I lived in a condo complex. And there was a lot of sort of integration with people there. And it was pretty healthy environment. And I couldn't tell you who believed what, right? We were all just right. sort of right. there, right? People got right. together, they had barbecues, I don't think anybody expressed their views on anything. You know, you were outcast if you were not kind to people. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, that was sort of the yeah. determining factor of you being outcast. Yeah. Right. You were yeah. violent. You were mean. You were rude. You weren't invited anymore. That was the right. the thing that mattered. And I think now that kind of goes away a little bit. Um, you're outcast because of your views that somebody saw on Facebook. You're still a very kind person. Right. Like, right. You, you know, right. you would still come over and plow my driveway. You just might not believe what I believe. And right. so we've added this extra dynamic. And I, I got to imagine it's a huge part of it. I think it is. And I, th I mean, I think there are many factors that converge on what you said. And one of the things is that I think like so many psychological issues, we tend as human beings to swing very far in one direction before we come back to the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that the whole emphasis on being independent and being like a self-made person and relying on yourself has some great attributes. There's something good about embracing your true adulthood and relying on yourself. But I also think it's something that both individually and as a country, we have swung so far on that pendulum swing toward that's all there is, that it has eliminated to a large extent that we actually do rely on each other. We are dependent on each other, whether we like it or not. I'm totally dependent on the entire world for my existence right now. Yeah. And so are we all. Um, that we've forgotten that we actually also need each other and there needs to be a balance between healthy adult independence and a focus on oneself. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to live in a, an environment and have the means to develop a career of your choosing and that kind of thing, great. But that we also really need each other and we need to find a balance as a country as well as individuals between how self-sufficient we are and embrace our interdependence with other people and other nations so that we're cooperative members, not really only of a national community, but of a world community. And again, these are mental health issues. This is what a healthy family promotes. Um, you know, a healthy, healthy parents want their children to individuate and be their true selves and develop their talents and their strengths or go after the kind of life that will make them the most happy and fulfilled while they're still cooperative and functional with the family and the larger communities that they, that they're a part of. And these, again, these are all mental health issues and I want to see them part of like a national agenda, a national referendum for psychological health and well-being, because actually, I think that is what will make us sustainable as a human race in the long run. I think so, too. You know, unfortunately, now, you know, when you're talking about children, you know, we here, we take our children's mental health as seriously as we take their physical health. That isn't right. always the case, and not everybody has the means to sort of focus on that. And I've seen right. programs get cut at school, and obviously, there's a ton of issues around you know, um, that I've seen like teen mental health has declined, right? We have right. Uh, rises in, in girls' mental health issues, you know, girls' suicide rates have gone up, boys' suicide yeah. rates have gone up. I mean, mental health just in general for teens, I think is very, very low. Um, you know, how, 
I don't know what the answer is there, right? It's like parents are struggling to make ends meet financially or just to keep their selves afloat and then the kids sort of suffer. How do we as a nation, I mean, I have my thoughts about like, hey, if we could just like enact like, you know, uh, like a healthcare policy, like, uh, you know, absolutely. right. Like mental health should be part of that. And boy, you've, but then we don't have the practitioners, right. I, I know getting right. a, an appointment right now by us is, is a bear. So mm -hmm. like, there's so many hurdles. Um, you know, do you think that a good methodology would be like, like community focus, right? If we could just fix up one right. community at a time, we're going to be somewhere and but it takes like the whole village to do it and right. I, I just don't right. it, it's again like i just worry is it you know will this be lost because the children are so mentally unhealthy right now like are we going to lose yeah. a generation well i think i think we're at a critical place i i absolutely think we're at a critical place and i think big changes are actually really what are needed on both the micro level of the individual and the family and the macro level of the national government and large institutions. Because right now, and I, you know, this seems like the thing that's like so obvious, but I don't hear lots of people talking about it. Maybe there are lots of people talking about it, but we put billions of dollars, billions of our taxpayer dollars into defense, yeah. into better ways to kill people. And that's really what it is better ways to kill people and if an individual family was doing that if they weren't feeding their children and getting them medical attention and sending them to school and providing them for good shelter and food and all of the rest and they were putting all of their money into assault weapons that they were storing in their basement we would think they were disturbed right very disturbed but as a country we tolerate that when we have amazing resources to provide for families, to pay parents better living wages and provide better work conditions for families so they're not bringing their stress home and acting it out on their spouses and children. We could have, we could fund mental health care. It could be free. Mm -hmm. It could be free. It could be seen as such a necessity that it's funded by the government or by the local communities because the, the need is so great and the need is so urgent. So it's not that it's not possible. It's that we haven't yet gotten it as a community, as a nation, that it is an urgent need. It's more, it's, we need that more than we need another bomb. Oh, yeah. We don't need the bombs. No, I agree. I mean, just this, this past week, I think we uh, approved, and it didn't even blip on anybody's radar, uh, $400 million in aid to the war in the Ukraine and Russia. And again, I have compassion for that. I know. But I also have to question, you know, the the money that is going that way versus when we have, you know, whole areas of our country that are living in despair, like despair, true despair, despair. right? Absolutely. You know, you look at areas like Detroit or, you know, Flint, Michigan and Appalachia right. where the infrastructure is so bad that people yeah. don't even you know when we talk about mental health people just think it's like i'm sad it's like no it's like i don't have access to water i don't right. have access to a job i don't even know what my purpose is here on this planet because right. i can't even figure out where i'm getting my next meal right so like if some of that sort of base is taken away as a as a worry now you can start to look at the bigger structural issues like so it is right. it is like it is a funding thing and it's where we're putting our dollars so it becomes right. bigger and I, I think sometimes people just get scared of how big it is <laughs> right know? right and we but we all have a voice and that's that's really what i'm trying to do with my one voice i have one voice i wrote one book you know maybe i'll write another one but you know what i mean there's millions of us and what if collectively we start to get informed and we start to feel like there's power in our one voice if we put all our one voices together we still have the right to vote and i hope it lasts mm -hmm. um and i think it's in danger you know um and while we do you know can we put our voices together and vote for people who are actually advocates for helping the general population meet those basic needs 
get the help that we need for our mental health, for rescue from intolerable poverty, discrimination, and, and housing, and other situations that make life so miserable for people that they either don't want to go on or they're so angry and in such despair that they'll go out and randomly shoot into a crowd of people. Because it's not people that are taken care of right. and mentally healthy that are doing this. this. These are people who are suffering. And as awful as what they're doing is, and it's awful, um, we have to understand that it that nobody is born that way. We're not born random shooters. No. Something happens to us. Yeah. I also think that a lot of people who, you know, I find it a weird sort of uh, thing that happens that people that need the assistance that a certain candidate would give them are completely against that sort of yeah. candidate, yeah. right? So like I yeah. can, you know, there's certain candidates that would definitely be, you know, supporting, say, you know, healthcare or, you know, right. a good labor environment and, you know, all these things, but they'll go like, I'll never vote for that person because of X or, you know, what, well, you know, right. and it's like, you're the exact person that would benefit from that person, right. you know, that candidate right. being in office. Um, it, you know, and it's just a weird, and I don't know what mentally that's about because there is, you know, I, I can just think of some people in my life that would benefit from, you know, universal mm -hmm. healthcare. Right. Like that right. should be like they would 100 percent benefit from that. If, right. And if I was in their shoes, I would be 100 percent behind somebody that's willing to give that to me. But, yeah, they will adamantly go against that type of politics for whatever reason. And I just don't know. It's like a mental block. It, you know, it's like and I don't understand that 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 will always escape me. Well, I do talk about that a little bit in my book, and I think in the world of psychology, we do have some understanding about why people end up that way, and there may be more factors than I'm going to you know, share with you right now, but there are some big ones that are kind of known, and one of them is, so one of the things that I do in my book is I look very in-depth at the dynamics of an abusive family, you know, where there's really overt abuse where there's sexual abuse or physical violence or incredible emotional violence, you know, where people are called names and put down and ostracized and those kinds of things, which often they all go together. Um, but in, in an abusive family, there is a closed loop of what you are allowed to think and believe. Any divergence from what you're told is punished. And so you have to go along with the party line and Often, you're not allowed to even be exposed to some other point of view. So, you know, often I've heard this from many, many clients over the years who grew up in abusive homes. They were told that, which is insane, but they were told this and they adopted it because that's all there was to adopt, that nobody else would ever love them but their family, even though they weren't being loved in their family. They were told not to ever tell what was happening behind closed doors because something bad would happen to someone they cared about or, or they wouldn't be believed. Or, so there's like a closed loop of information that really settles in a person's mind. And survival depends on believing that message. And going against it is dangerous. So that's part of what happens to some of our population that are, you know, on, on any level where we're just told one thing and not allowed consider many points of view and come to our own decision about what we think is right or good for us, that it's, it's a kind of brainwashing mm. that can happen in an abusive structure where, um, where you're, you have to toe the party line and information is limited. So that's one big thing that I think sets the stage for what you're talking about. And the other really big one is that when, and I see this, I've seen this over and over again over many years of working with people. Um, that when abuse is no, and neglect are not interrupted, when people don't have access to being rescued or get treatment for the impact of the traumas that they have survived, they tend to go in one of two directions. And, you know, this is a generality, so it doesn't apply to everyone. And we all know people that this didn't apply to. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are many, many people and more and more people that the generality that I'm going to describe to you does apply to. And that is when there's no help, no rescue, and no treatment, 
people tend to either become very passive and submissive or they identify with the aggressor and they become like the aggressor. And so you have a population of people more and more, and this is one of the big dangers that I really try to point out in my book, that when a governments are abusive, when institutions are abusive and they allow and they adopt and they condone and they perpetrate abusive policies toward some segments of the population, then you are creating an environment in which you have more and more people who become helpless because they actually are. They can't resist or people who will do anything not to be passive and helpless and they identify with the aggressor and they're like the kids who rally around the bully on the playground. And we have that in our country. We have people rallying around some of the most bullying figures that are in power, the most you know, abusive figures that are in power. And we have many people who don't feel like they can resist and who have been taught that They've either been taught that what, what the person in power is doing is really right mm -hmm. or that there's no, there's no hope in resisting it. And these are very dangerous dynamics for a country, and they're very dangerous dynamics for our world. Right. And I guess it, it, it makes sense because those very outspoken figures on either side of, of our uh, mm -hmm. pol political you know sphere right now, they're the ones that get the attention, right? So we all know the names on either side of, of that right. argument, right? right? And But then what happens is that trickles down and then the voices that sort of parrot that or behave in the way that those figures behave get the most attention sort of in their totally. social media world or the real world or whatever it is, right? They become the ones that everybody's like, oh, look at them, right? And it's a small portion, but it's a loud voice, you know, which is, right. is the same thing that happens to bully at school, right? There's one or two right. of them, but they're the loudest voice and they're the ones that everybody's fearing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it is, it's a very sick, you know, that makes a ton of sense, Phyllis. I, you know, I think that that is a good explanation of what's going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, what we, what we need is for people to be, to stop, you know, claiming the partisanship and claim mental health good, healthy human relations. How do we repair this divide? Okay, we have it. It's terrible. It's intense. It's fueling itself. It's, it's resulting in threats of civil war and violence at times. How do we pull back from that? How do we bring people to the table for the sake of everyone? And, you know, and I think one of the big challenges, so we can talk about, and I do talk about, you know, the elements of of how you of what you need to do to do that mm -hmm. but you have to have people that are willing and sometimes people are not willing until they they really feel the threat to themselves and i hope that we can feel what's going on as a threat to our country and all get on board with looking for resolution rather than who's going to win um Unfortunately, I think that that idea of, you know, people understanding when it's time, I think it, that relates very much back to recovery, right? Like you, right. you kind of hit a point totally. in when you're using drugs or drinking, you know, everybody talks about a rock bottom and everybody's right. bottom is completely different, right? And some people never reach it. Some people reach it well before there's a problem and, you know, and then there's this right. sort of spectrum in between. And, you know, I think you know everybody's going to identify you know these problems at a different point and it's all going to be focused on something very individual unfortunately to everybody right it could be the school violence it could be the political violence it could be the lack of access to certain types of health care that become problematic to people but like it takes a very sort of enlightened person i think to understand it that it's all a problem right and right you know and to see it sort of coming at them from you know a, a 10 mile distance rather than when it's 10 feet away from their face and i think you know there's a there's a group of people that see it like hey we're in dire straits right now right yeah. america's what like uh, on the happiness scale you know or respected countries we're we're, we're just in the top 100 you know um yeah. you know so this idea that you know america's this 
this beacon of hope and all this stuff. It's like, I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but I also don't know that it's the worst place. I don't think we're beyond help. I think, right. you know, I don't either. yeah. And I think there's some great structural things in place here. And I think that, you know, all in all, I think people are great. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they like, are. They're, they're great. Like I, I know I have differences with people on my block, but I also know that I could rely on them for help, you know, and, right. Right. you know, so all in all, I think we're very good. It's just, you know, again, I, I say this to my dad sometimes. I think that people who can make a difference are just so busy in their day-to-day -day life that they can't pull themselves out of it to actually make the difference, right? Like, you know, it'd be really challenging to run for office. I, It'd be I, really challenging to run for office because you are basically put in the Coliseum yeah. with a lion. <laughs> I, I did. I did it at a local level. Actually, I ran. For, yeah, I ran for town council. I always say, like, if I have a problem, I'm going to go to the place. Right. I'm not going to write about it on Facebook. I'm going to put myself into the place, be it the town, the school, wherever. Right. It's you. the only way that I can actually say that I tried. Um, I yeah. lost. Right. Like I knew I was going to lose um, on paper. I will say I was by far the most qualified candidate, um, right, but right. I wasn't a Repub I wasn't a registered Republican, and I lived right. in a Republican town. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was no way I was going to win that battle. But I wanted people to understand what I was seeing wasn't okay, and right. but it's hard, right? One, it took money, um, it took time, and if I had won, it would have taken even more time. But I was willing to right. do that. But right, beautiful. I don't know how and, many people are. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think it's harder and harder yeah. because the social media just, you know, digs to go after you for anything they can find. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think it was it's great that you did that. Your voice was out there. I'm doing it with in my way. You know, everybody I know is doing it in their own way, whether it's on a very, very small you know, I'm just going to be a better parent. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a better friend. I'm going to create more community with the people that are around me. It doesn't have to be big. You know, um, we can all be a grain of sand that makes that beach. And and that, you know, and, and I, think there, I think it's an illusion to think we're more than that. But, but we can do it. And you're doing it now. You may not be running for office, but you're doing it on your podcast. Mm -hmm. You're bringing health and healing and community and communication and dissemination of knowledge to all your listeners. And that's an incredible contribution. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's you know, unfortunately, sometimes we get people running for office who are a little bit, you know, their, their intentions aren't good. And, you know, <laughs> but whatever, I, you know, well, it's, it's uh, maybe in there, I will say this, in their head, they are good. And that is the strange part, right? Like, to the mm -hmm. like they are so much behind their beliefs that it is good in their head and being right. able to understand that point of view i think is important too like to understand think, that that person believes no, that's, that's right yeah right like how totally you know but being able to ask that person the question of like why do you think that like what happened like you know like how did you get here Right. That's right. That's right. That's the question. Yeah. And that a lot of people are not willing to answer. But I think that what, what, why, again, why the world of psychology has so much to offer, even with just what you're saying, is that, yeah, I think people who were killing people in the Crusades thought that they were doing the right thing. Um, so I think the most important thing is to look at that as what is the state of mind that would have a person believe that rather than challenge them just on the grounds of what their beliefs are. What is the state of mind? How are we as a country contributing to the state of mind that would have someone believe that persecuting a marginalized population is the right thing to do? Right. And, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I think we, that we really need to look at, and there's so many, you know, there's many, 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 but what you made me think of when you were talking is that, you know, our, our, our collective addictive nature. And one of the things that we're suffering from is an addiction to power. It's not just substances. It's not just money, although money and power really go together, but it's an addiction to that, that we're suffering from that people often who end up in office can't get enough power because there's something, there's a high off of having that, that level of influence and control 
and just like with a with an addiction to a substance, at a certain point, the impact that a person is having on the people around them and even on themselves goes out the window because they're just looking for the next high, whatever that is, or the next fix, and and they can't stop. And I think the same thing happens with power, and I think the same thing happens with money, and I think the same thing is happening with sex in our country. Yeah. There's just these these huge addictive impulses that we need to confront, not like they're bad and criminal, but how do we heal from that? Just like we try to heal from addiction when people are, you know, when people are ready, yeah. when, when they hit bottom. So these are large issues that are playing out. Sorry, I'm having a, an allergy in my eye oh, no. um, that are playing out, you know, on the national level and on the local level. And they need intervention everywhere. Yeah. It's, you know, I always, you know, we say in our world of recovery that, you know, when we're talking about any sort of addiction, right? It's you're you're trying to regulate something inside of you with something right. on the outside, right? So that can right. be food, alcohol, drugs, totally. sex, money, power. Like you are feeling something inside that you need to fix with something else, right? Like, right. and right. so it makes sense that it is just sort of a, a problem with everybody inside and they need to figure out how to deal with it. I. I I am an advocate. Anybody I work with, I'm always I always say therapy is a great first step, right? Like yeah. if you are yeah. uncomfortable going to AA or you know any of these meetings, therapy mm. is a great first step mm. because it gets you in touch with who you are and and sort of why right. you're doing these things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that that same point of view really applies to so much of what's going on in our criminal justice system. You know, one of the things that I was reading about when I was writing my book is that, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but the percentage of people incarcerated now who have untreated child abuse is way over 50%. So what do we do? Right. You know, we have to heal the elements in our society that are contributing to the, to the disintegration of our families. Child abuse is rampant in our country. Child neglect is rampant in our country. So, of course, people are going to be symptomatic. And some segment of that population is going to turn to crime. Yeah. Is it their fault? Or do we have a collective responsibility to heal our family, to heal this country, so that we're creating an environment that doesn't contribute to that. You know, again, not going to be perfect. And there's people we don't know how to treat. But there are many people in prison today who don't belong there, who really never got a fair shake, and they deserve help. Right. Yeah, I mean, listen, I can see it in my community, right? There's there's people that I see that are needing help. Um, children, you know, uh, and you're like you kind of know what's going on. It's hard to step, you know, step in and you can't yeah. help everybody. You know, um, it needs to be a bigger effort. You know, we can right. only do so right. much as one family to help other families. And we try, you That's know, a, again, right. We, right. we coach, we volunteer, we do all these things. Mm. It's just, um, you know, everybody needs to do their part. And when I look around my community, what I see, it's the same names, the same families you know it's always this, you know it's a small group that that can do it and some of it is has to do with i think you know ability to access their time um, funding you know there are certain right. you know issues around helping and then there are people who have time and money and just decide to stay home you know but right um, right, right you know right. It, it's not right. everybody's willing to put themselves out there um like you are and i uh, you know right. i listen i think it's great what you're doing I think it's great that you've, um, you know, identified this problem and are, are trying to do something about it. It's, yeah. it's important. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not alone. And let's join hands with the people that are, that, you know, sort of see the iceberg <laughs> in the distance, right. you know, so that we can steer the ship away from it because it's not that far away. No. I don't think the iceberg is actually that far away. And, um, and, you know, it scares me. I have children, I have grandchildren and you know one of the you know one of the many many impulses behind me um, writing this book is I want these children, my grandchildren, and all children, all children everywhere, to inherit an earth that's habitable. 
you know, a, an earth that welcomes them, an earth that wants them to thrive, and really I'm saying the human population. And right now, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is climate change. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, how, how bad does it have to get before we come together to try to solve it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother episode, yeah. but I know it's hot yeah. here in Jersey and we've yeah. had some crazy yeah. weather this summer and it's hot out West and, you know, Florida's water temperatures are through the roof and I mean, I it is, it's all over the place. So something's, uh, you know, changing, yeah. um, you know, and again, there's certain candidates that focus on it in the right way. There's certain candidates that focus it on the wrong way. And I think it's one of those issues that you can use as a divisive tool to mm-hmm. to further your your power, and right. you know that's when you start to question the person, right? What are their actual intentions, um, and why are they wielding this tool? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and often when people actually do know, you know, something that they're you know they know better than what they're advocating, and I think you know it would be a whole other conversation, but I think. One of the conversations that we need to have in this country is about the power of denial, hmm. because it's a psychological phenomenon that we keep on denying what we know. Sure, <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah, I mean that's a big part of addiction too, right? Deny, yeah, you know? and it's yeah. like it keeps you yeah. in it. It keeps you totally in your addiction if you can deny it, right? You can, yeah. you can justify it. You can talk your way out of it. You can you know, just act like the world is, is fine and nothing's wrong and it's burning down around you. And right. anybody that's been in, you know, in the shoes of an addict kind of knows that. So. Knows that, yeah. And I think one of the things that I, I just want to emphasize is it's also burning down inside you. Mm-hmm. Because one of the features of denial is that you actually really do know even while you're in denial. You know, unless you're dissociated, you're truly in a dissociated state, you do know while you go on not knowing. And that is a horrible internal psychological landscape to live in. It's actually torturous. And so, you know, I have great compassion for that. I've lived in lots of denial myself at different times. Um, And, you know, one of the things that therapy does and we can do this for each other. You don't have to be a psychotherapist. But one of the beautiful things that psychotherapy does is make it safe to come out of denial and own the truths that are so painful to face, um, whether it's about ourselves or about how we've treated others or things that have happened to us or whatever it is, that we have to make it safe for each other to come out of denial. Um, and that's that's a that's a whole other ballgame that can be a national thing. Like, what if we started to talk about the things that we've done as a country that weren't good? Right. What, and took responsibility for that and role modeled that for our children. Right. It's rather sort than of, spinning some story that's totally not true and everybody knows it's not true. It's like taking a moral inventory. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to do. <laughs> I think it's one of the hardest things to do, actually. Yeah. We all just want to be right. Yeah. It's very difficult. Well, you know, we're coming up on an hour and I want to respect your time. Yeah. I, um, this yeah. has been great. I do try to end all the episodes on like a, a kind of a fun note. Um, just asking sure. people about what they've taken in media wise recently, either me- books, music, TV, movie, anything that you yeah. sort of recommend. Uh, you know, I know we talked about a lot of heavy stuff, so yeah. is there anything? Okay. I'll tell you the most recent thing we watched, my husband and I, we watched uh, the whole series of Ted Lasso, and we loved it. <laughs> like, and I'll tell you, when I'm when I'm when I'm watching a movie or television, I, for the most part, I only really want to watch feel good, yeah. funny, and feel good. I don't want. I mean, I know because I I'm already inundated with what doesn't feel good, you know. So in my downtime, I just want my heart to like feel good and. We just love Ted Lasso, and we laughed out loud, and we love the characters. <laughs> it is a it is a repeat uh, recommendation on the show. We've had Ted Lasso okay. multiple times, so I, I keep telling uh-huh. everybody: if you haven't watched it, you have to watch it. It is that's uh, what I do. <laughs> it is a great show. We loved it in the house. We're going to rewatch it. I think. Um, you know, I coached soccer for many years, uh, and okay. uh, you know, last night I was up watching. 
I'm just going to give my recommendation now. For anybody who's not watching, the U.S. Uh, not the U.S. Well, the U.S. is in it, but the Women's World Cup is going on. Um, oh. So you know, there's it's it's happening in Australia, so it's off of our time. But I mean, there's some great soccer being played by the women out there, and the games are exciting. Last night's game between the U.S. and Netherlands was a one-one tie. Um, you know, as exciting of a sporting event as you could watch, right? It's there's the stakes are huge and. Um, the talent level right. is is really good. I mean, I think the women's soccer game has come, you know, it used to be U.S. was sort of at this high, high level and everybody else was well below, but I think it's really sort of uh, flattened out. So the games are mm. quite good. Mm. Um, so mm. I'll tie my recommendation to your Ted Lasso, but Ted okay, is great. such a great, great character. and it's a great character. Roy. And such good messages in it. You know, not perfect, but some really good messages in it. I, I, it, it was recommended to me, I'll just say this, by a friend of mine who had watched it and with her partner, and she said they were on their third time of watching it. She said to me, we just decided we didn't want to live in a world without Ted Lasso. <laughs> That's a good world. I, we're going to do the same thing. Um, we're And we're re-watching... Um... Shit's Creek. I don't know if you've ever watched that. I never did. I'll have to try that one. Okay. So a similar kind of vibe. Um, different, definitely a different type of comedy. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, overall, I say that that show gives me hope. Like, oh, good. It's, That's what I want. Yeah, it gives me hope. It's, um, yeah. you know, it's a story about a family and how they sort of can overcome a lot of challenges. And, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it makes me realize, like, no matter what happens, if I have my family around, like my core family, I'm going to yeah. be OK, you know. And, yeah. I, and I think messages yeah. like that are kind of what we need right now. Right. Like the Ted Lasso I, totally. message, the family, like that's where we need yeah. to be. So, yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things I loved about Ted Lasso, too, is just how um, how beautiful some of the role models were for both dealing with conflict and um and working your way through it even when it didn't resolve mm -hmm. and the commitment to you know the commitment to like really good values in in and seeing people you know own some of their stuff mm -hmm. like i thought that was so beautiful like nate and jamie yeah. you know really owning their stuff and and seeing the correlation between the bad things that happened to them and the ways they acted out on other people and then actually doing some healing. Yeah. Beautiful role model for our country. Beautiful for our, for us individually in our country. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, the, there was a quote in there about curiosity when yeah. Ted was playing darts. And like, to me, that is that totally nails it. You got to be curious, mm -hmm. right? Not judgmental. Yeah. And right. if we could all live in that place, I think we'd be good too. So there was a lot of lessons Perfect. in that show. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has just been an amazing conversation. Great. I'm glad you had a good time, and I, I definitely had a good time. I'm going to link all your social media, your website, the books on the show notes in the podcast. Um, so please. everybody, please take a look in there. Um, I think you have a lot to offer. Uh, your first two books also sound very interesting, and that definitely gets more into your personal Right. journey so right. you know those are out there right. as well as this book that's focusing more on you know the troubles in america right now but um right. you know everybody will take a look in those notes and this uh this will come out next monday for your info great and, great thank you yeah. and if it's okay with you i'd just like to invite people to i'm redoing my website but my old website is still up and if you would if you're interested please just sign in to my email to contact me or the sign up for my newsletter. Because if you put yourself on my email list, I will let you know I have a publisher and I will let people know as soon as my book is available. Awesome. Um, so yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. So I'll link all that to, to the uh, notes and Great. again, thank you Great. so much Phyllis for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. And, thank you. Um, you know, everybody, if you could like, subscribe, review the podcast, it helps. And we will talk next week. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah.